Good morning. We're going to read from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14 through 21. 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning with verse 14. As, children of obe- as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in him. You may be seated. What is holiness? And those are some questions that you, you don't have to answer out loud. Uh, my favorite kinds of questions. Just, just think about them. Um, what, does, what does it mean to be holy? How does holiness even look in a believer's life? What are the grounds for holiness? You see, the followers of God have struggled with these sort of questions ever since God presented himself to his people, Israel, as a holy God and commanded them to be holy in response to that reality. As as it is said in Leviticus 9, verse 2, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel, and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. See, because Yahweh was set apart from all the other gods, because he was the only true God, because he existed and still exists in a category by himself, The people of God, in response, had to be different from all the nations around them, set apart morally and ethically in response to the holiness of their God. And that was the holiness of God. This will be the holiness of the people of God. God was, from the beginning, the the ground for human holiness. But as people stepped away from God, as they started going more on their own ways, as they started um, having their lives less God-centered and more self-centered, as they started having their lives more trivial, more like the other nations around them, they have lost the meaning of what true holiness is. In early Judaism, consequently, the law and the sacrificial system in itself, apart from the person of God, has shortly become the essence for holiness for Israel. And God will criticize that approach probably all throughout the the section of of the prophets in the Old Testament. Then in later Judaism, they added to the law and the prophets the interpretation of the rabbis, which was called Mishnah and Gemara, and they they were meant to be a fence around the law that people had to follow. That was the grounds for holiness. And this will be criticized by Jesus, um, especially in the Sermon of the Mount, and also almost every time he will talk to the Pharisees, which unfortunately and and falsely were considered the image of human holiness in the time of Jesus. 
this situation will become even more complex during Christianity. Because you see, Christ has already made us righteous. He has already made us holy before God. So during the times of the New Testament, during the church, the, the Christian church, two extremes will emerge. On one side will be those who will think that although Jesus paid it all, although he paid the price, the believers must still make themselves holy through works. On the other side were those who will claim that because Jesus paid it all, because he paid the full price, then the believer's life conduct is irrelevant to holiness. Those are the two extremes. One will lead to legalism. The other one will lead to license. One was addressed by Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, when he said, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. And then in regards with, with license, John will be very clear, uh, um, will have a very clear message against this, this extreme in first jo- chapter, chapter 3. I'm going to read verse 6. No one who ab- uh, abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. And then again in verse 8, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, says John very bluntly. Unfortunately, in spite of the Bible clear message against these two extremes, these two extremes will be a constant all throughout Christian, all throughout the history of the Christian church. And we find them even today. From the side claiming that we must produce our own holiness through works, we have gotten monasticism, people going into monasteries, isolating themselves from the world. We have gotten much of the Catholic and the Eastern Orthodox theologies. And we have, gotten, we, we have got a ton of evangelical churches for which the form has become more important than the substance. Growing up in Romania, I've seen a lot of this. In some churches, you, as a man, you had to wear a tie, otherwise, otherwise you, could, you could not be holy. In other churches, you had to not wear a tie, otherwise you could not be holy. <laughs> even, even today, if this church will be in the, in the, in the northeast of Romania with tattoos and jewelry, it's not good. It's, it will not be good. Brother, you will be at the bottom of the pit. It's, <laughs> it, it, yes. But, but, it, but, but this extreme had produced so much of that. But then on the other side, from, from the side of people claiming that, that our lives are irrelevant for holiness, we have gotten a lot of ethical liberalism, a lot of casual Christianity, and even more significantly, I would say, a lot of cultural Christianity which is defined by, it's, it's, it's uh, represented by those people who say that, I, I, I believe in God because when I was two or three or six, I, I, I believed, but now they live completely secularly and they are not committed or, or at least not healthily committed to any community of believers. Just for reference, today in America, about twice as many Christians are non-practicing Christians than practicing Christians. In a study published by Barna Group in 2020, 25% of Americans were practicing Christians. 32% are non-Christians whatsoever. And then 43% are non-practicing Christians. Brothers and sisters, I think it is safe to assume that we have a major problem 
understanding holiness in today's Christianity. And you know, you don't even have to know statistics. You can just open a news channel, you can just open your social media, you can just open even a Christian news channel, especially this week, and you'll be terrified with how much unholiness is being revealed and how much unholiness is even being promoted, especially during this month. Moreover, you don't even have to look outwards at all. You can just look inwards and you will see a ton of unholiness. You don't have to be in any of, of the two extremes. I think if I will ask the question today, how many of you here are legalists, probably nobody will raise their hand. Or how many of you live in license, that means that you still delight in, in, in sin, probably nobody will raise, a, will raise a hand. The reality is that every time that our lives are off-centered from God and from the gospel of God, we will tend either towards one or towards the other, or sometimes towards both. When we lose focus on God, on, on, on Him reconciling Him, reconciling us to Himself and on the gospel, then our desire for holiness is being misplaced or it's even being suffocated. And this is not to make us all hopeless this, this morning, but I'm hoping that this will serve as a reminder that when our lives are self-centered and when God is not considered anymore the reason and the means for human holiness, for our active life of holiness, there will be no other outcome that we should expect than empty religion, moral corruption, or deconstruction even. So we arrive at this text this morning that that we already read, and, and this text is, is going gonna, is gonna to teach us this morning, I hope, that the existence and the work of our triune God must unescapably prompt, prompt believers to pursue living in holiness. I'm going to read this again, as this is the main idea. The existence and work of our triune God must unescapably prompt believers to pursue living in holiness. We learned last week, uh, and I, I enjoy listening to the sermons through this series uh, in preparation for my time here, but we learned last week from verse 13 that the believer should live with true hope. And, and the main idea of Pastor Tom, I will just read it so I, I won't butcher it, but he said, the gospel-shaped life demands that we live with hope, set on the future grace of God, which is, which is being prepared through sober-minded Christians ready for actions. And now Peter takes that verse and he builds the whole argument of verses 14 and 21 on this fundamental verse. In other words, he says something like this, the one who has his, his life shaped by the gospel and the one who lives soberly with hope in the future grace of God will also pursue holiness. This is not something that we must produce on our own or something that we could ignore either. But it is something anchored and prompted in the existence and the work of our triune God. So we are going to ask the question this morning, why do the existence and work of God call us to holiness? And the first thing that we find in Peter's argument is because of the Spirit's work of conversion from verse 14. Because of the Spirit's work of conversion. And if you paid attention to the reading, you probably realize that, that the Spirit is not directly uh, referenced in this text. However, the words that this text started with were, as obedient children. And when Peter says here, obedient children, he doesn't use it in the way we use it today. 
It doesn't talk about the quality of our kids of being obedient or, or, or being disobedient. Actually, the words behind this, this um, uh, English text that we have here are as children of obedience, which indicates that Peter refers actually to the identity that we have as children of obedience and not to something that is habitual. Obedience here stands for conversion as those who are converted, as those who are believers. In contrast with the, last word, the last word of this verse, ignorance, which stands for the pre-conversion state, when, before we knew the gospel, before we, we were tra transformed by the gospel. And thus, the first argument for holiness is rooted in our conversion. Because we were brought to life by the Spirit, and because we, were, um, uh, because we are brought to belief by the Spirit, and we were adopted to God's family through the Spirit, we are also called to be holy. Then, let's not miss the first word of this verse, of, of, of verse 14, as children of obedience, or as genuine believers. That means that this text is for us, the believers. It's not, for, it's not for those who do not believe in Christ because, in fact, there is no call for holiness outside of this sphere of reconciliation with God. Doing good deeds or, or going through religious motions without being first transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ and without being first reconciled with our Creator is not a pursuit of holiness. It's a hopeless journey. We hear it a lot today. I, I'm not sure I believe in God. I'm pretty sure the Bible is not true or not the way you, you see it. But the Judeo-Christian values are very good for my family, so I'm going to go to church. Or the Judeo-Christian values are very good for our society, so we should stand up for them. I, I, actually, a few, a few years ago, Jordan Peterson and, and, and people like him will push this mentality a lot. And unfortunately, so many Christians have fallen into, into, that, into that trap. But you see, that's not the pursuit of holiness because goodness and holiness are not the same thing. You see, one who lives a, de a decent life based on Christian values but is not reconciled with God will have the same eternal outcome as one who lives co in completely ignorance of the Christian values or in complete opposition to the Christian values. Because Christianity, reduced to a set of values, without a covenantal relationship with God, of faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ, who died for us, is not Christianity at all. It is delusion, brothers and sisters. And also, if these verses are for believers only, there is another reality that comes out of here. In regards with the second half of this verse, we are not exempt from the passions of our old self as believers. Peter says, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. That means that we are in a constant battle. Even now, we're in a constant battle with our old self, with our old desires. And we must be sober-minded and we must be ready for action to resist the appeal of our old self. And the reason why that is a reality is because we live in this already but not yet uh, uh, state. Christ has already paid the whole price but he has not yet perfected us. And until he returns, we are going to live in this tension between the new self, uh, the one that Christ has given us through his sacrifice, and the old self that we have put to death. Amen. But yet, until Christ will return, we will be still in this, in this tension between the two. 
um, Paul says something similar in Romans 8, verses 13 through 17, and I want to read them for us. For if you live according to the flesh, you will, you will die, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our, own, with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. In other words, the children of God must be set apart from the old self for what they used to be. And they must put to death the old self and now have a new identity through the work and the presence of the Spirit in their lives. That means that every time we give way to our old desires, we act against the new identity that Christ has offered us. And every time we, we give way to our old desires, we betray the calling to be holy because our God is holy. And if our lives are characterized constantly by a gratification of our desires, then perhaps there is no new identity at all. Just as John said in 1 John 3, 6 that we have already read. Therefore, putting this all together, because the Spirit has given us, has given us a new identity, we are called to be holy, morally and ethically set apart from the world. Not to turn ourselves holy, not to work hard to achieve holiness, but rather to live in accordance with our identity that we have received in Christ. If that is the case, then every time we struggle with sin, the solution is not simply to work harder. The solution is not simply to isolate ourselves more from the world. The solution is, go back, is to go back to the cross and to delight more in this new identity that we have in Christ. In fact, we, we must deepen ourselves in Christ more and more every day. We must love Him more and more every day. We must yield to the Spirit more and more every day. We must lay ourselves down and put on Christ, as Paul said in Romans 13, 14, more and more every day. Because this is the pursuit of holiness that comes out of the identity that we have received through the Spirit, through the work of Christ. The second answer, why does the, the existence and the work of our triune God call us to holiness, is because of the Father's character. Because of God's character, verses 15 through 17. See, Peter switches here from negative reasoning, do not be conformed to, our, to your old self, to positive reasoning, be conformed to the character of God. And if you remember from the previous sermons, Pastor Tom has already, um, um, said, has already said how much Peter likes sandwiches, and he couldn't finish this chapter before making another sandwich. Um, so we, we have here uh, the bond of the sandwich, verses 13 and 21, represented by the hope that we have in the future grace of God. And then, and then in verses 14 and 18 through 20, you have the ham and the cheese or whatever you put in your sandwiches. And then in the middle, verses 15 through 17, you have that thing that puts it all together, makes it all make sense, that, that topping that, that you put in your sandwich so then it won't be just a dry thing, it will be, it will be something good. So the character of God then it's, it's the, it's the thing that puts it all together, that makes holiness make sense. And this is what we need to imitate. 
Wayne Grudem said, the imitation of God's moral character is consistently throughout the New Testament, the ultimate basis for ethics and with that for holiness as well. We are called to be holy, Peter says, because our God is holy and because our God is just. So we're going to take these two one by one. God is holy. Verses 15 to 16 go like this. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And Peter probably quotes the verse that we already read from Leviticus 19.2. But pay careful attention to the words that he uses here. He says, as he who called you is holy. You see, the, the reason why we are to imitate God is because he has called us in a relationship with him. He initiated and he, he set the standards for a faithful Christian living. And we must, we must accept that. And we must live in the light of that. We, we don't set the standards for holiness. God has already set them. And we don't initiate our relationship with God. God initiated it already. So then, his revelation of himself as being a holy God and his standards for holiness are an expression of love that he has shown us when he revealed himself to us. It, it is a great thing to realize how gracious God was to reveal himself to us, to come from eternity into this, into this time and space and to reveal his love to us and to reveal his grace to us so that we will know the greatness of our God and we will know the corruption of our own hearts and we will realize the need that we have for God himself to save us. And we will realize also the need that we have for him to bring us back to the likeness of himself that we were meant to hold to. We are called to be holy. It is not simply, a call, it is not simply an invitation. And there's not really also an expectation to do it through our strength. But we are called to be holy because we were brought into this sphere of reconciliation with God. And we must embrace holiness. It is, a, it is a great privilege to be called to be holy by God himself, who is holy and who, who set the standards and secured the means for us also to be holy. Then Peter says, be holy in all your conduct. That means that we are to delight in God and let him reshape every area of our lives. That means that when you are at work and there are no brothers and sisters around you, you are still going to be holy. Or when you are at school and your classmates attempt you to, to give way to, to all the old temptations, you are still going to be holy. Or when you are by yourself at home or in the office or even by yourself in your own thoughts, you are still going to be holy because our God is holy and because that reality must transform every bit of who we are. He's holy in that he's separated from sin and devoted to seeking his own glory. And thus, holy living is living characterized by, by a, a deep desire to walk away from sin and, and to delight in seeking God's glory and God's honor in our minds, in our hearts, in our speech, in our actions, in everything that we are. So Grace Church, how much honor and glory do your thoughts give to God every day? 
How much do you seek to glorify Him in your daily actions, in every area of your life? How much or, or, or what desires rule over your life? Are they desires for self-fulfillment? Are they desires for self-elevation? Or are we ruled by a deep desire to glorify God by laying ourselves down and allowing Him through His holiness to control our lives? Because brothers and sisters, our God is holy. And Peter says that our God is also just in verse 17. He brings back this image of the father-son relationship. And, and, and he, he started this image in verse 14. And he presents now the father as showing no partiality. God cannot close an eye to sin. He cannot just hug it out. Because he is eternally consistent in his perfect justice. This completes Peter's argument. Because we were, we were called to imitate God because He's holy, but also because He's just. If God was only holy, then, then imitating His holiness will be simply a suggestion or an aspiration that we'll have to become more like our God. But God is also a judge. That means that the very standards of His holiness are also the standards of His fair judgment. Do you realize that? So then the call to live in imitation of our God or imitatio Dei is strengthened by the reality that we live before the face of God, Coram Deo. We are to imitate Him in, in His holiness, knowing that that's the standard that He expects from us. Peter says, therefore, that, that under the fair judgment of God, in everything that we fall short, of his standards, he sees us and he's going to judge us. That's what Peter says here. So I don't know how that reality sounds for you, but for me, it used to sound very scary and it used to be a hopeless reality. When I used to still delight in my sin, every time I will, I will do what God does not like and every time I will, I will fail into obeying God, I, 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 will, I will get a satisfaction from this sin, but then that will be, that will be automatically followed by a fear and guilt because I knew that God saw, and I knew that God is just, and I knew that He cannot stand sin. Amen. However, though, that, that fear that God will crush me was taken away once I learned that Jesus was my Savior. Once I learned that it, it, Jesus took the sin and, and, and paid the price for my death at Golgotha. So, so then this fear that, that God will crush me was replaced by an amazement with the grace that I have received from God because he took the blame and he, Jesus allowed himself to be crushed under the wrath of God because of my sin. However, verse 17 says, the, the last part, conduct yourself with what? With fear throughout the time of your exile. And the time of exile represents our life here on earth. So should we or should we not live with fear? I'm, I'm, I'm very glad you asked because I think it depends on how we regard fear. If, if by fear we mean that God will crush us for our sin then if we truly understand the value of Jesus' sacrifice and if our life is truly renewed and we are truly hidden in Christ, then we have no reason 
to fear that once Christ will return and the judgment of God will take place, we will be crushed under our sin because Christ had paid it. There's no reason to believe in that kind of fear anymore if you put your faith in Jesus. However, if by fear you mean that feeling of awe and reverence before the awesomeness of God, then yes, that is the fear that we should live every day of our lives before the face of our God. This is actually consistent all throughout the Bible. If you want to think for a second uh, at an episode from the beginning, somewhere, somewhere in the beginning of the Bible, you will find Joshua, and before conquering Jericho, he wanders around, around the city of Jericho, and he sees a man, and he learns quickly that this man is actually not just a man, it's God himself. And the only response that Joshua can produce is fall at his feet and worship. And then you go further through the Bible and you find, you find um, Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. And he sees God, he sees the glory of God, and he sees the temple being filled with God, and he sees seraphim uh, singing uh, holy, holy, holy about God. And the only response that he can produce is, woe to me, for I am a man with unclean, with unclean lips, living amidst a people with unclean lips. He thought he was going to die because he saw the awesomeness of God and he saw how small he was. He saw how holy God was and how much of a sinner he was. And that, that story tells us that God himself cleaned his life so that he could live in the presence of God. Then you come in the New Testament and you find the, the author of, of, of this book, you find Peter, and, and he meets Jesus after a completely unsuccessful night of fishing Jesus comes exhausted and Jesus tells him, go, go and throw the nets one more time. And he goes together with his fellows and, and, and they, they start bringing up the nets and they are filled with fish. And, and as, as Peter's friends are putting all these fish in the boats and the, the boats are sinking under the heavy load of fish, Peter doesn't help them. Do you ever realize that? Peter doesn't help, him. Instead, help them. Instead, the only response that he can produce is fall at the feet of Jesus. And he says, depart from me, for I am a sinner. He too understood that he was undeserving of standing before the awesomeness of God because our God is holy. And the same attitude should characterize our lives as well. When we realize that we don't deserve to stand alive before the throne of our holy judge, apart from the sacrifice of Christ, because he's holy, 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 then we will live in faithfulness. And then we, we will strive to, to honor him and we will live in awe and reverence towards him. When every time when we go before the majesty of God, we get goosebumps, not because we are afraid that he will, he will crush us, but because we cannot believe our eyes or the grace that we have received that the creator of the universe himself has paid the price for my sins. So then now I can stand before him. And then he did that while I was rebelling against him. When we truly understand those things, then we will delight in his holiness. And, and, and then we will make imitating his holy character, a, a chief purpose of our lives, and that's simply because that brings him glory. Church, our God is a holy judge who showed us loving, perfect grace. How do we live before the face of God every day? And the last answer to the question, why does uh, the existence and the work of God 
call us to be holy is because of Jesus' redemptive work, verses 18 to 20. We looked of the Spirit's uh, um, a work of conversion, we look of the Father's character, and now we look at Jesus' redemptive work. And more precisely, we are going to look a for, for a few minutes at uh, uh, Jesus' sufficiency and efficiency of his sacrifice. In regards with the sufficiency of Jesus' sacrifice, verses 18 and 19 go like this. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. You see, after, after telling his audience that, that, they, that they, they live before the face of God, and that for every, every time they fall short, they will, they will give an account for that to God. Peter doesn't leave that in hopelessness. But he introduces the work upon which our, our eternal security is being built. And that is the salvation that we have received through Jesus Christ. These verses are so theologically charged. Almost every single word that Peter uses in these verses encapsulates a major part of our soteriology, or, or, or the, which is the study of salvation. In fact, in, in, in verses 18 through 21, we, we find almost every single major aspect of soteriology. We see predestination, redemption, substitutionary atonement, original sin, total depravity, Christ's immaculate nature, eternal grace, assurance of forgiveness, assurance of eternal salvation, the exaltation, the nature of our faith, and a few others. These verses are packed with information about how Jesus has saved us. And they are very valuable. We could talk for hours about this. So how, how much time do you have today? Because I, I, I will tell you, I, I need to go play paintball after this. So um, I, uh, what we are going to do, um, we are going to look at, at these verses and we are going to have a big picture approach. So we are going to try to look a little bit at the riches of these verses while, while keeping, keeping a big picture in our mind because they are so dense. You see, the sufficiency of Jesus' sacrifice is presented by, by Peter in terms of a slave or war captive marketplace. He uses this word ransomed or redeemed, which was not a religious word during these times. It was a word that was used whenever a slave would be liberated uh, by the paying of a price. Following this image then, what Peter communicates here is that we were all once slaves to our own sins. And we were caught in this futile or nonsensical way of living. And we were with no chance to liberate ourselves because not even the greatest price that we could have paid, see the reference to the gold and silver, not even the greatest price that we could have paid will suffice for our liberation. Because our guilt required the perfect non-receding payment. And hopeless as we were, God looked at us with grace and with love. And he determined that Christ will come and pay the price for us. So then the precious blood of Jesus that was spilled of Golgotha stood as a sufficient payment for you and I to be liberated from under the slavery of sin. His perfection and only His was absolutely sufficient for us to be liberated from sin and to be called into the family of God. It was sufficient because of the value, this precious blood of Jesus, which stands for the giving of life that Jesus did at Golgotha, for my life and for your life. 
So our pursuit of holiness, our best good deeds, our, our best acts of righteousness are completely unnecessary to complete Jesus' work. Because Jesus' work has been perfectly completed by Him. Amen. Therefore, there is nothing we can add to the value of Christ's completed work. And neither should we try to add anything to, the, to, to Christ's completed work. Therefore, legalism proposes a low view on Jesus because it assumes that works are still needed to achieve a holiness that Christ has already achieved for us. But then, don't miss the, don't miss the flip side. Because of the preciousness of Jesus' blood, and because we believe that this blood was spilled for my sin and for your sin, that should prompt us to a deep submission to our Father and should prompt us to our utter rejection of this sin that has put Jesus to death. Therefore, license also proposes a low view on Jesus because it assumes that we can still delight in the sin that put Jesus to death on the cross, which is a nonsense. Both extremes are born in a view that Jesus' blood is cheap. It's not that important. It doesn't matter that much. But brothers and sisters, if we truly understand the value of Christ's blood that was spilled for us, then the only response that we could come up with is a pursuit of true holiness. In Romans 6.22 Paul said something similar to this. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Which means that as we were ransomed through the blood of Christ, we were given the fruit of holiness. Because Jesus is the vine and because we were grafted in him, that we can produce the fruit of holiness that comes from the vine himself, from Jesus himself, until he will return and perfect us. Now, in regards with Jesus' efficiency of his sacrifice, we are going to look at the last two verses that we read. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Again, keeping this big picture approach, you see the efficiency of Jesus' sacrifice in that God resurrected him and that he was glorified. Christ was foreknown as a savior even before time and space even existed. And he was revealed as our savior at the fulfillment of, Jesus, of God's plan of salvation. And when Peter says here that, that he was foreknown, it doesn't simply mean that God could read the future. But it also means that God could determine events in the future. So brothers and sisters, from before the earth was created, from before Adam and Eve were created and had a chance to choose rebellion, God knew that we will choose to rebel. God knew that we will choose to, to attempt to be like him. We will choose to attempt to define our own good and evil. He knew that we will choose to follow sin and delight in it. And yet, he loved us and he determined that he will come and save us through Christ. 
And after Christ came and died for us, he did not remain dead, but he was resurrected as a triumphant message that God received the sacrifice of Jesus for my sake and for your sake. Paul said in Romans 4, verses 24 and 25, but for yours also, talking about righteousness, it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord who was delivered up for or because our trespasses and raised for or because our justification. He died because we have sinned and he was raised because God has received his sacrifice in our st in, instead of us. His sacrifice, therefore, was efficient before the eyes of God. And moreover, after he was resurrected, he was glorified in that he, he, he went up to, be a, to, stand, to sit at the, at the right hand of the Father. As, as is, it is said in Hebrews 10, 12, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And then again in Philippians 2, 9, 11, Paul puts it beautifully here. Therefore, God has highly exalted, exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that as the name of, as, uh, the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This eternal, absolute glorification of Jesus then. Should, should be a source of faith for us in believing that Jesus' sacrifice was eternally efficient before the eyes of God. It was efficient 2,000 years ago when God resurrected him, and it will be efficient for eternity as Jesus is our high priest in the heavenly holy of holies. Nothing can separate us from this great love of God that he has shown us in Jesus. If he were up to us, nothing that we could have produced would have been efficient to liberate us. But because it's up to Jesus, then we can have confidence in the justification that he has, he has secured for us. And we can live in light of the reconciliation that we have now with the Father. At the very end of, of this passage, Peter brings back the idea of hope that he started talking about in verse 13. And he closes this sandwich that we talked about. And you see, holiness, if it, was, if it was on our own power, on our own strength, will be a hopeless task. But if our hope is in God, if our hope is in Him, then, then holiness is possible, is necessary, and, and is a thing to delight in as a believer. However, if you are here this morning and you are not a believer, before you choose to pursue holiness, you must choose Christ. You must pursue Christ. You must pursue the salvation that comes through Jesus Christ. Because our deeds, as good as they may be, can contribute nothing to our eternity. It's only through Jesus. The work that Christ has done for us, that is uh, uh, the work that can bring us eternity if we believe in Jesus Christ because he has come and, and he, he has come to cover for our sins he has come to make us right before God and if you believe that he died in, instead of us if you believe that he died for your sin to cover for what you deserved 
if you put your hope in Christ, and the Bible tells us that you can have eternal joy in Him based on that sacrifice. So brothers and sisters, we are called to holiness based on the existence and the work of our triune God. We are to live holy lives because the Spirit has given us a new identity. We are children of obedience. We are to pursue holiness because we are to imitate the character of God who is holy and just. And we are to respond in holiness and put our hope in the future grace of God because of Christ's absolutely sufficient and efficient sacrifice before the eyes of God. Let us not fall in either of these two extremes to believe that we can achieve holiness uh, by our own strength and it, it is something that has to do with our own virtue. But, either, uh, but even not, not, not the extreme as well to believe that we can ignore holiness altogether. Let us brace ourselves with sober-mindedness and hope and live out the true holiness that we have received by the, in Christ from God the Father through the Spirit in us. Amen.